Hi, thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm Lindsay, uh, and I'm, I'm very honored to be sitting up here with two amazing entrepreneurial women, uh, Huda Idris and Christina Stemble. Um, Huda uh, is currently uh, starting a new healthcare startup. I'm going to let her tell you more about that. Um, uh, but previously was former head of product and design at Wellsimple, which is a financial services startup, um, and designer at Wave um, and Wattpad. Uh, as well. So lots of entrepreneurial experiences that she'll draw from during our discussion today. Um, and Christina is currently the founder and CEO at Farm Girl Flowers, uh, and I'm going to let her tell you a lot more about that. You may have seen a blog post that the Lean Startup Conference put out about the work that she's been doing, um, but a lot of uh, really awesome stories that I'm excited for her to share with you today. Um, before we get going, just uh, a word on the topic uh, of the panel. So. Um, you know, the, the discussion today is going to focus on uh, our collective experiences uh, working at and running um, uh, startups, and our experience with the Lean Startup Method is part of that. Um, you know, one important thing that the three of us have in common, as you can tell, is we're all women. Uh, so some of the questions will be directly related to being a woman uh, running and, and working at a startup. Um, but other questions won't. They'll be more generally about um, kind of lean startup methods and how we've employed them uh, in the various roles we've worn. So just keep in mind we're telling you that uh, our experiences from the perspective of women, uh, even if we're not directly talking about gender with every question. So when we get to the Q&A portion of this, um, I'd encourage you to ask questions specifically about uh, kind of gender roles in startups, but by all means feel free to ask more general questions and just uh, know that that's the perspective we bring uh, to, to the startups we've been part of. So um, I'm going to lead off with some questions to get us started, but pretty quickly we'll turn to you so we can answer the questions that, that you all have. Um, when we get to that point, I'll just invite you to come up to the mic and, um, and, and ask whatever questions you have, and we'll take it from there. So to kick things off, uh, I'll ask each of you to just briefly introduce yourself, um, kind of the, the current role that you're in, and uh, a little bit of how you got there uh, as well. Hi there. So my name is Christina Stumble, and I own an e-commerce flower company here in San Francisco called Farm Girl Flowers. Um, we like to say, you know, everybody says they're the Uber of. We are um, like pro flowers, but we think better. Um, and that's in our opinion, to be very clear on that, legally speaking. So, um, so when you were in the gifting category, um, e-commerce, like I said, so birthdays, anniversaries, any kind of an occasion flower, also for yourself, just because is a great reason. You go to our website just like you would Pro Flowers, 1-800-Flowers, those guys. Um, what we do different is we offer one daily arrangement instead of hundreds of options. Uh, and the reason we do that is because it limits our waste uh, down to under 1%. Industry standard is about 40%. And we can offer consumers a, a designer quality arrangement at a generic e-commerce price. So you get a much better product for the price that you spend. Um, and we started in 2000, I say we, the universal we. Um, I started it for my dining room in 2010. Um, and now we are about 82 employees uh, here in Petro Hill. And we ship nationwide. Uh, hi, my name is Huda. I'm uh, based in Toronto. That's Canada, just north of here. Um, the city you'll probably be uh, migrating to if one of the presidential candidate <laughs> wins. Um, my, uh, my story goes in, in uh, I went to engineering school, so I'm this engineering person who turned into a product designer who turned into an entrepreneur. And uh, it all started because I turned down an offer to intern at Google. 
Um, and you know, Google's like cool now, but it was like really cool six years ago. Um, so it was weird that I was doing it, and I did it for this dinky little startup. They were in a tiny little room, um, and it was called Wattpad. They're now a, the largest storytelling um, platform out there for uh, readers and writers. Um, and that sort of made me realize how the inner workings of, of a business are, are done. I was part of two rounds of their financing. I got to see how they work, how the different roles develop over time, because in the beginning, it's all generalists, and then you, you slowly start to find your specialty and go into that. Um, and people who know me from Toronto know me as, as the girl who likes Ws. So I worked at Wattpad, then Wave, then Wealthsimple most recently. Um, and now I'm sort of, uh, this is the first time I'm founding my own company. Um, and it's, it's really exciting, and I'm sort of drawing from all these experiences that I've had before. Um, and it's, uh, it's, you know, frankly, it's scary. It's um, coming up against a lot of these things that you didn't think um, W would be would be problems that you would have. So going back to the, you know like dinky little offices, I've converted one floor of my apartment into my office. So my team of four works out of my living room, um, and we will graduate out of that at some point. But um, that's where we're working right now. Um, the new startup that I'm working on um, is in healthcare technology, and, and we believe healthcare is an industry that is deeply entrenched in a lot of regulation and archaic legacy systems. Um, and my background in product design and my co-founder's background in operational excellence, we feel is the perfect fit to be able to tackle that market uh, when it's sort of uh, ripe for disruption, we believe. Great, so we'll, we'll stay with you. Um, one thing you guys have in common with your startups and who I'd say with the many startups that you've worked at um, before starting Dot Health is you are trying to disrupt industries with pretty deeply entrenched business models that have been around for a really long time. So can you talk a little bit about how the fact that you're disrupting entrenched models has sort of shaped your approach and if you can reflect on kind of how the lean startup methodology has, um, has been involved in that approach, uh, that would be great. Yeah, totally. I, um, I read this book called Third Wave by Steve Case, whose closing remarks are happening later uh, today that you should totally stick around for. And he talks about how the third wave of businesses is all about companies um, realizing that partnerships and policy are as important as product. So he says the second wave, which was like Facebook or Instagram, whatever, could start off in a garage and like people could adopt it and it would be okay. But the real change that's going to happen now will be these entrenched industries. Um, and I feel like my experience at Simple. I can draw an almost exact parallel to healthcare, which was financial. Um, and we're, we're speaking to these financial regulators who are like, you know, deeply concerned that we're gonna put our investors' money like in these areas that are you know, super volatile and we're gonna lose all this money and we're this deep, like, startup that doesn't know what they're doing or whatever. And you have to be able to build that trust with people in, I would say, given the startup methodology, in small bits of experiments. So as an example, we were developing an algorithm that better realized your risk tolerance. So Wealthsimple is a robo-advisor. For people who live in the area, it's like Wealthfront, but for Canadians. And what we did is sort of, you know, literally sat down with the financial regulators being like, this is what my algorithm does, what do you think? And it wasn't out there, um, so customers weren't using it yet, um, but at least they could look at it and feel like they could trust us before moving forward and, and going sort of gangbusters on, on, our, on our area. So for us, um, yeah, there was definitely, uh, it's a big, the e-commerce space for flowers is about $3.2 billion, and four companies made up three quarters of that. So I saw it as a great opportunity, you know, because all four of those companies I would have to use if I sent my mother flowers in Indiana, and I didn't like what was out there, so I figured that there was probably a lot of people like me that, that also didn't like it. Um, but when I, I pitched to investors initially, um, you know, the, the response 
was all over the place, but one of the big things was why would we invest in a company, you know, in a company that's going into a space that's already so saturated and um, it's declining. It's not a growing market. Um, and all the research I did showed that the reason it was declining and not growing were the same reasons that I was unsatisfied. And so I thought, I can fix this. Um, you know, the reason I didn't want to use those companies to send my mother flowers was the same reason that everybody else in my peer group didn't want to send flowers, which is why consumers were buying half the flowers they were 20 years ago, so or 15 years ago. So um, I just thought, I actually saw it as a great opportunity that I could fix this, um, even if everybody else thought I was crazy. And um, I thought, well, if they think I'm crazy, that's good, because that means it gives me a little bit of a head start on competition, which it did. It gave me a couple of years before everybody copied us, or in my opinion, might have copied us. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I really thought of it as, as, I think it's a great thing that, that there's really big machines doing it and not doing it to my satisfaction. So it's something that I can disrupt. Kind of on that vein, can you talk a little bit about your go-to-market strategy? I did read the really great story about kind of how you got your first MVP out there and started um, assessing kind of customer interest. So can you can you share that story with the group? Yeah, definitely. So I started Farm Girl with forty-nine thousand um, dollars. I and to this date we've never taken any capital. So that was that's all the money that's been invested in, and it was. I thought that was a lot of money back then. I was really naive, <laughs> and uh, it went really fast. Um, and so. One of my big, like the reason I love Lean Startup methodology, the biggest thing I love about it is the MVP because I have a lot of friends that spend years researching and rewriting business plans and having this, you know, idea that's still percolating forever. And, you know, I quit my job at Stanford in June and we launched November 7th and I was really ticked off that it took that long. I thought we were going to get it going much earlier than that. Um, so, you know, I didn't have enough money to just prolong it for a long time. So that actually helped me. Um, and the reason, you know, one of the things that I really learned is, you know, I got it out there. It looked very different than it does now. The first year, I did $56,000 all year long. That was total top-line revenue. Um, and it was one product. You could get a vase or one of our trademark burlap wrap bouquets, but it was much smaller than our product now. Um, and what I found is that consumers weren't purchasing them for other people. They were purchasing them for themselves. And I was really confused because I thought well, I was going into the gifting category. So I'm like, what's going on? So I did a little focus group, which just means I took everybody to a wine bar and plied them with liquor and a couple hors d'oeuvres and asked them questions if they'd bought from, from us two times or more that year. And um, there, I had a group of 11 women that were wonderful and gave me really good feedback. They told me that they love our, my flowers, um, but they were too small because they were much smaller than our current sizes. And it was a lower price point because one of my missions was to make flowers accessible to anyone. So it was a $25 price point, um, about half the size of our current small. And so they thought that it was a good bouquet, kind of equivalent of going to a grocery store. They would pay a little bit more for a nicer product, but um, it was equivalent of you know just going to the grocery store and buying themselves flowers. But if they were gonna send a gift, they wanted to send something bigger. And then the thing I'd never thought of was they didn't want the recipient to know how much they'd spent on them. And by having one price point, the recipient, yeah, and I would have never thought of that. I was like, I figured out that I was making myself the Taco Bell of flowers, and that's not what I wanted to be, you know? And so I went back to my apartment, that was also my workshop slash everything, and um, added sizes and figured out that we just code it so the recipient doesn't know what size they got, um, but we know when we're delivering it, and immediately people started buying for other people when I did that. So I think it's really important to get your product out there and test it in the market because you know, you're, you're too close to it. And what you're thinking isn't what everybody else is thinking. And it's really hard to 
get your ego out of it and think that everybody doesn't think like you because you think you're brilliant. I thought I was brilliant and I knew all the answers, but I didn't. And so then getting that feedback from customers really quick. And I still, I mean, we have our customer service team sits right next to where I sit and our manager sit. And I can hear every single thing that's coming in through customer service because I want to know. You know, I want to know when, you know, we're getting, you know, people are saying that our flowers are boring. And I'm like, I've never heard that before. Why, you know, and so then I'll get on the phone with the customer and be like, what's boring about it? Tell me more, you know, and find out that it's, it happens to be just because it's Valentine's Day and it's the only time that men order and they think our flowers are boring compared to women. But, you know, and you find out a lot of information just by asking your customer. And if you didn't have your product out there, how could you get that information? Great. Um, so on this topic of, of talking to customers, um, uh, do you think that being a woman has impacted your ability to talk to customers positively or negatively or influenced the way you do customer discovery compared to kind of, you know, what's, what's taught in textbooks or that, what you see others doing? And um, can you reflect at all on whether or not you think kind of your gender has impacted your approach to lean startup methods at all? Uh, that's a really interesting question because I think it's one of the few areas where it's... Um, beneficial to be a woman in technology. I think you're a lot less threatening. Like, I, For example, like I do a lot of um, street photography and I feel like I have a much easier time taking photos of people because they're not threatened by me necessarily, most sometimes. Um, and I think it's similar in customer discovery or when I'm approaching them about um, new ideas that, that I have. And it could be because there's, there's, a, there's a general bias in, out there that says you know, women are not as supported in um, in the technology sphere, and so maybe people are trying to overcompensate for it, which I will take any day. Um, I think I think that's totally fair, um, and and I, I I would say I don't know any place where it's it has hurt like even hurt me. So I was in financial technology for two of the startups that I was a part of, um, and finance is not an area where lots of women work or create products or whatever. Um, and so there there would be like some areas where I would try to bring in someone who was like a regulator who had like was an investment banker and they'd like worked in this industry forever. And um, they would be like meeting with the head of product and design at this new tech startup. And then they would meet me and they'd be like, what is this young girl who's like all the intersections of minorities I can think of um, <laughs> doing, talking to like, why is she this one? So I think um, it helps me by being like the underdog in those scenarios. Um, so I can like surprise them hopefully by yeah. by not being all the things that they think I am. So I don't think it's hurt me with customers at all. I actually think customers really appreciate it when they're just heard by anybody. Um, and especially if they're like, wow, the CEO is calling me to get my opinion on this, which is I think like people like that and they're they're kind of... Um, just thrown off by that because usually people outsource customer service and you know nobody really is talking to them. Um, I think it, it definitely has been challenging in other areas that aren't customer facing. I think also one of the other really good positives though is um, almost all of the other flower startups, um, new old, old traditional guys, everything are all 100% owned by men. And yeah, and 80% of people that buy flowers are women for women. Nobody knows that. Everybody thinks guys are the ones buying flowers. They don't, unless it's they're in trouble or it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> so, um, so I think it helps me tremendously being a woman. Um, we actually were a product first company. We like to say, and it's we we care about the product. If you go into all of our competitors' places, you won't see a flower because you know other people are making them for them. Where we make everything in house, and we have you know, designers making them because women. The reason that sales were declining is because we didn't like what was out there. So why are we going to do the same thing over and over and over again? We're going to do something different. And it's really helped us 
being woman-owned, I think, because we have the design aesthetic that other women want. And uh, I love that we're also the sleeper on that because all of the other people have raised a tremendous amount of VC money. And so everyone's like, oh, it's just that girl in San Francisco, whatever, you know. And we're like really growing and we're kind of the one that they're like the sleeper one that I'm just really excited. I don't want them to know much about me, you know, it's, yeah. it's good for that. So there's been other challenges. I definitely think it affected uh, my inability to raise capital. Yeah. I will say that really straightly. Um, you know, being a solo female founder, um, without the pedigree, I think really affected that. Um, I'm really happy about that now that I didn't. Um, but, and then also, which this is really weird, but um, flower sourcing um, and supply chain has been more difficult, I think, as a woman, mm -hmm. because you wouldn't think this, but the flower industry is all men. All men. You would never think that. It's like fashion. You would think it'd be women running it. No, no, it's not. And it's a lot of um, old school, you know, third, fourth generation 100% male-owned flower companies, growing companies, wholesalers, and that's been pretty challenging from the supply chain standpoint. Got it. Thanks. Um, can we talk a little bit about capital? Um, so you you just mentioned that you um, either you, you we'll, we'll stay on you because okay. you were just talking awesome. about it, that you decided not to go the VC route. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? How that's impacted the way you're running your business? Um, maybe the the leanness that your business has had to take on as a result. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the, how that has played into your business model and approach? Um, so I didn't really decide not to raise capital. It decided for me <laughs> not to raise capital. But like I said, I'm really happy that we didn't now. Um, so the, when I, the biggest learning that I have overall from having a company, overall, is that success does not equal funding. And it sounds very basic, but it's not. It really isn't. Um, I fell into this trap of thinking, because every networking event I would go to, people would ask, the first, second, or third question out of their mouth would be, you know, what round are you on? Who's funded you? And as soon as you would say that you're bootstrapped, they look directly over your shoulder for someone more important to talk to. And you're like left like trying to validate yourself, like, oh, hey, we're the 14th fastest private you know, company, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why am I having to validate myself to these people? Because they think I'm not important enough to talk to. Um, and so when I... It, and that was the first reason. Second reason that I was trying to raise capital was because out of fear, yeah. which is never a good place to be, right? Yeah. And you make really bad decisions, and I made some bad decisions. Yes, I was on a really bad reality show. Everybody will <laughs> ask me about that every time. But it was out of fear, and I was really scared because I saw all of these um, strikingly similar, is the legal term I'm allowed to say, strikingly similar companies pop up, raising millions and millions of dollars, and I really thought I was going to be the friendster to their Facebook and I got really scared, and I thought, I have to go raise capital. They just raised $30 million. I need to go raise, because everywhere I'm going, people are asking if we're this company now, instead of us who, you know, like, it, it was really demoralizing and really scary. And so I thought, I have to go raise capital. So I went and I pitched to 26 different companies on Sand Hill Road in Boston, New York, and thought, this is going to be easy. We have huge growth. I mean, our numbers are really good. And um, it was not easy. And now that I look back, I wouldn't want to fund me. <laughs> like, we're not a good... Uh, funding. My, I mean, I'm trying to build a long-term sustainable business that treats our employees right, that isn't just worried about the net profit margins. Um, and th that, those decisions are more important to me than uh, what's going to do a very immediate uh, J-curve, basically, you know, hockey stick. So, um, but the reason I was doing it was for those two reasons. And once I stepped back and thought, why am I trying to raise capital? It's because I'm afraid and because of my ego because I need to feel successful, and to feel successful, I have to get Andreessen Horowitz to you know, invest in me or whatever. And 
Um, failed at it, felt horrible, overate a bunch of carbs, gained a bunch of weight, <laughs> whatever, no, and, uh, and then realized, I don't need funding. I can just grow, you know, the way a company should grow, in my opinion. And, um, it, you know, we're a perishable product company that's also a service. We're going to be really lucky to get 15% net profit margins. Like, that's not a good investment for most VCs. And now I don't feel like I have to justify, um, you know, that I'm successful in spite of getting funded. Um, I think I'm, I actually wear it like a badge of honor. Like, hey, $49,000 investment to $10.5 million in sales in five and a half years is pretty phenomenal, you know? And that's okay. We're okay without it. And we'll just grow. We'll get to the billion dollars. It's just going to be a 20 to 25-year um, trajectory to the billion dollars instead of a, you know, five to nine-year mark. And, and But we'll own, I'll own 95%. My employees will own 5%. And I'll go back and have my pretty woman moment where I'm like, big mistake, you know? <laughs> and, that's it. So. <laughs> Good. Um, so you said you were part of uh, various financing rounds at Wealthsimple. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that experience and how uh, the decision to raise certain types of capital impacted the business model? Yeah. So I've, uh, I've only worked at venture-backed companies, and I think we have this um, notion in the startup world that if you haven't raised money, you don't matter. And I think, um, I think it's, it's, a, it's sort of I want it to be time that we think differently. So MailChimp is a great example. Basecamp is a great example of these large technology companies that were built without taking financing. And Jason Fried like, spoke earlier at this conference. It's phenomenal. And like, his company is doing phenomenal stuff. And, and they're OK being where they are without taking any money um, and constantly talking about valuation. And like valuations are really just like projection. Nobody actually knows. Like, it's not a liquid thing that you can be like, OK, that's $20 billion. I can cash this out. Um, so I think we need to be thinking about it a little more carefully. And what I've learned sort of through out. So uh, Wattpad, which was the first company, and we did two rounds of financing during my time there. Um, it was really interesting because it's sort of been around, and the co-founders, Alan and Ivan, had been very specific about bootstrapping it. And it was at the time when, you know, smartphones weren't a thing, and it's an e-reading company, so we literally built apps for, like, feature phones, and you had to, like, click that scroll button to read. Um, and it, they built this community up where investors were knocking on their door asking to invest. And I think that's a really good position to be in. I think that is the kind of position that I want to be in if I am raising financing. And given a little bit of my background and a little bit of the interest in the healthcare space, we've been really fortunate where we've had investors asking us if they can invest in the company. But I think, again, we're so early on, we're too months old, we're so early on that I think we have to be really careful about who we let in at what stage, because once you give up that control, even if it is, you know, the, the 10, 20% and give up a board seat, you're now becoming a little bit of an employee at your own company, mm -hmm. depending on, you know, how much financing you're taking. And I've, I've been a part of companies where we took on too much financing at the wrong time, and I think it, it, it hurt the company more than it helped it. Yeah. Um, and it's really easy now that the investment sort of... Um, market is so ripe and everybody's a, everybody's a venture capitalist and everybody wants to invest their money, um, it's really easy to take in tens of millions of dollars when you don't really know how you will spend it. And um, it, if, you can, if you can raise on your terms, that's what I would suggest. Um, given that we are in healthcare, which is, um, it's an expensive industry to be in before you can get traction or, or whatever it is or make it really big. Um, I'm not being naive. Like I do know that we will need venture capital at some point, um, but I think I will be a, a lot smarter 
um, about when I raise and exactly how much amount I raise and on what terms I raise so that I can, you know, I, I can work at my own company and not just somebody else's because I went through all this like trouble to start my own company only to become an employee at it. Uh, yeah. that, that's not, that's not what I want, um, eventually. Um, but yeah, I, I'd love, I'd love sort of, you know, to, to give more, um, uh, importance to um, to companies like Christina's that yeah. do that do self fund or that fund using their own revenue. I think there's a lot of power in that. I think startups are in their own little um, bubble, if I can call it, where the where the last thing we think about when it comes to money is revenue. I know. Yeah. We a business. The whole point of a business is to create value, and like a lot of value is usually money. So think about that from the beginning. But I I find so many startups don't. They're like, well, I'm gonna amass 80 million in users. Yeah. And then I'll think about yeah. money. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I know, I'm trying to stay away from that. Yeah. So I've been having conversations with people throughout the last couple of days. Actually, we're going to stay on you because I want to follow up on something you said. Um, I've been having conversations with people over the last couple of days who are getting to the point where they're thinking about raising financing. Um, I think most of them are thinking venture capital. Um, and, and so they are sort of asking this question of like, who do I raise from? How do I evaluate if they're a good investor? How do I think about you know, the way that that conversation should go. So you, you mentioned like you'll, you'll think um, a little differently about um, who you take money from and, and all that. So can you talk a little bit about the lessons you learned about kind of the right and wrong way to take money and um, in specifically, you know, who the right kinds of people are in your mind to take money from? No, for sure. I think um, specifically if you're looking at giving up a board seat, um, you have to look at the partner that you're going to get access to. So um, Wattpad's Series A was Union Square Ventures out of New York. And the thing that USV stands for is network. So they really care about the kinds of networks, and you know this, um, the, you know, networks of users that you have out there. So they invested in another Toronto company called Figure One, which is, which is a healthcare company, which is an Instagram for doctors. And they care about how many doctors across how many geographies are using it and how are those interactions happening. And for Alan and Ivan at the time, it was really important that the investor they were bringing on was paying attention to the right things. A big part of Wattpad and the mass amount of readers and writers that were constantly coming to their sites was the network and how could they learn from other uh, portfolio companies? And we did. We we learned a lot from uh, from Foursquare. Uh, they'd invested in Tumblr. We learned a ton about younger audiences there. So I think paying attention to the person who's going to be coming onto your board, Andrew, um, mm. uh, who who did come onto our board, you know, knows a ton about e-reading, like blogs a ton, like writes a lot of stories, and um, and and that is very very um, I think important. Another thing is like look at their the rest of the portfolio companies that they invest in. So, um, for example, um, the, there's a venture capital uh, company called Venrock that like heavily invests in healthcare startups that are that is in California. And um, maybe if you're a healthcare company, you need to be looking at Venrock because they know a ton of these roadblocks that healthcare companies have seen mm -hmm. uh, and how to avoid them. Yeah. Um, and then looking at uh, the the kind of control again that you're giving up to different yeah. companies. Um, I, I won't say which ones, but some of the, of the VC firms do have like a bad reputation in like replacing the founder right away because that's just what they've done in the past. So do your homework, think about the kinds of things that they've done in the past, and ask yourself if you're okay with it. Sometimes if you're like desperate or if you want to like sell or get acquired, whatever, maybe it's okay to take that money. Um, but I think the way we're going to think about it is, you know, the, the, the board person that we're getting, the kind of control that we're giving up. Um, and what we need them, I, I really like when uh, companies do like strategic investment. And that word is a little problematic, I get it. But um, what can this uh, venture capitalist give you aside from just money? Yeah. If you just wanted money, 
you know, would you go to the same person or what additional thing can they offer you? So, you know, Venrock can offer you access to a lot of different healthcare companies. USV can teach you more about networks. Maybe think a little bit, um, little bit about that. Great, great. Okay, last uh, question for me, for Christina, and then I'm gonna open it up to you all. So start thinking about your questions and um, as soon as you're ready, come, come to the mic and I'll, um, I'll turn it over to you all. Um, so the last question I wanna ask um, is about employees at your company um, and hiring and firing. Um, I work with a lot of startups and I, if I had to say maybe the hardest thing um, to teach someone how to do uh, that, that's starting a startup for the first time is how to hire the right people, how to know when to let go uh, of people when it's just not working out. Um, and it sounds like you have a really great employee base that mm -hmm. you value um, a lot. So can you talk a little bit about lessons you've learned in hiring and firing over the years? Yeah, so we have, um, it's a little bit different employee pool than most companies around here. We're actually building a manufacturing facility in San Francisco, which is really nuts, by the way. <laughs> um, so we have 82 employees and uh, our team members, and uh, but most of them are not the, I mean, I'm this whole entire C-suite and above, just be really honest. So like, I don't have a COO, C, CFO, CMO, CTO, I do all of that. Um, I wouldn't recommend it, it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, but I have amazing floor managers and production managers. Um, like I said, we do everything in-house, so we do design, we do delivery, we have bike couriers all over the city. If you've seen them out with flowers, those are our guys and girls, they're amazing. Um, and customer service and shipping, everything um, is in-house. And I find that if, you know, we find really good talent, um, 90% of the time, but the 10% of the time that we don't, we just need to get rid of them very quickly. Mm. Um, we don't have the ability to have any fat at all. So yeah. um, we do trial shifts with people before we ever interview, because okay. it's not even worth interviewing until they come in and actually see what it is, because we have a very robust digital presence and people um, romanticize what we are <laughs> and uh, think that it's gonna be this cute little flower shop um, based on our Instagram feed. And then they come in and they're like, whoa, what is this? Um, and there's quotas, like we call it Ford Motor Company, so there's quotas you have to do. Um, you know, it, it's definitely more production skip mode. And so if it doesn't work out, we just want, we want them to be free to, to find a good fit. Um, I think one of the reasons that we have um, really good talent though and that we keep good talent is that we treat our team members right. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that set up, sets us apart. So um, in this gig economy um, that we're in, we aren't that. So I'm always on the panel next to the Uber guy or to whatever, which is like, I'm like David and Goliath here, you know, <laughs> the epitome of that. Um, but I really strongly believe in taking care of your team. So we, anybody who wants full-time is full-time with full benefits, 100% benefits, same benefits that my husband has at Facebook. We have a very good benefit program for them. Um, not free lunch though, we are very scrappy. We drink out of a hose, I'm not joking. Um, we are extremely scrappy and I wanna do what's right for my team. Um, and I don't give them the option of like free lunch or medical insurance because probably 90% of my team, given how young they are, would say free lunch, but that's not what's important for them. So I'm gonna be the mom and I'm going to get them a 401k before I get them free lunch or, you know, because 20 years from now, they're not gonna remember that pizza. Um, so. Um, I think it's really important to me if we're putting people in harm's way, especially I mean, bike couriers, for goodness sakes. And most of the bike couriers you see all around town for a lot of the other companies, none of them have workers' comp or medical insurance. And if they get hit by a car, that's their livelihood. And it's really important that we take care of them. And so I think 
um, they see that and they know how much we're really trying um, to do what's best for them. And we also pay, I can't say living wages, because in San Francisco that's like kind of impossible. But um, you know, we pay on average of 19, 20 bucks an hour, um, which is a lot more than minimum wage for what we're asking them to do. Um, and so I, I just think that that's really key. You can't expect people to really care about their job if you're not caring for them, so. Great, okay, questions from you. Come on up, I know you have them. Great. Thanks. Hi, thanks for the presentation. Not mic'd. Can everyone hear me? I'll repeat the question okay, too. Okay, great. Um, my question is about gender lens investing. So, Christina, your business is something I think many people would consider traditionally feminine, mm -hmm. and that you sell to women a yep. product that appeals to many women. Mm -hmm. Whereas, Huda's experience is almost entirely in industries that are not dominated by that voice. What role do you think gender lens investing? So quick repeat of the question, then I'll let you guys take it. So the question is about gender lens investing. Um, and uh, uh, as the person who asked the question pointed out, Christina's business is sort of more traditional feminine business, a business. Lifestyle. <laughs> selling to women. Uh, selling to women. The industries Huda has been part of are traditionally sort of male-dominated um, industries, um, financial services, healthcare. Uh, so the question is, what role could gender lens investing play in each of the businesses that they have been part of? Is that a, was that a good summary? Of what yeah, you, that yes. Okay. No. Okay. You want to start or me? Um, well, okay. So, yeah, we're definitely. If I heard lifestyle business one more time, I was going to throw up. I'm like, you know, it's it's you know, it's a business. It's a good business. Um, but I think that uh, my experience was. Um, I can't really say negative, but it was eye-opening. Um, so every single scenario, at most there was one woman in the room. Every, it was always five to seven 50-year-old uh, white men, basically, that I was pitching to most of the time. And expecting them to understand my business was really challenging. Um, and they aren't the ones that buy flowers. And when I would ask them, you know, when their feedback, I'd get their feedback and I'd ask them, well, who here has bought flowers in the last year? Only one time did anybody raise their hand, once, out of 26 pitches, there are 26 companies, multiple pitches um, for each company. Um, so I think it would help a lot to have um, more specific, uh, you know, I, I actually think that we just need to get more women in the room. Um, I think, you know, one of my ideas, with bright ideas, was that we need to get like a consulting company of, you know, females that will go into these VC firms and like just tell them like what they're buying, you know. Um, I'm sure that exists somewhere, but um, because it was just really frustrating. Uh, in I, meeting number six with a, a large investment company on Sand Hill Road, I actually heard we don't like your flowers as much as the other ones, and I'm like, we're the fastest growing flower company. We're like, you know, highest rated, most reviewed. Like women love our flowers, and then I was like oh, okay, I get it, you know, I just did a focus group the Valentine's Day before and asked men and women which bouquet they preferred and our bouquet or this one that looks more like a grocery store one and 40 out of 40 women picked ours and 39 out of 40 men picked the grocery store one. So it's like trying to get them to understand what women want is just very challenging and difficult and kind of I just felt like it was a brick wall <laughs> a little bit, you know. Even if you have the numbers, so my experience is that we need some we need something to change um, in industries where female consumers make up the the major demographic of, of consumer base, basically. No, for sure. I think um, it's interesting that we don't have many. Um, 
female VCs out there, and I think it directly reflects the kind of funding that goes where it goes. Lots of VCs sit on that table and you know try to imagine themselves in you. And if you're an old white man, it's very difficult to imagine yourself in me. Uh, let's let's be honest. And so. Um, I, th I think just even having a female presence or having minority presence or having a representative group that is not homogenous helps a lot. Um, uh, I haven't, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of all the people that we've spoken with and I feel like most of the partners that either get in touch with me uh, or that we've spoken to in the past tend to fall in one of the minorities that I'm a part of and I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, there was another study that I was recently reading about how um, when there's a female partner in a venture capital firm and they invest in a female entrepreneur, that company actually does better and it could be lots of different factors, and it's a new study, so whatever. It could be, it could mean nothing. But I think that's really interesting to think. You know, how does that impact um, the people that you're going to reach out to? Is as a female entrepreneur, are you more or less likely to get in touch with a female VC than you are with a male VC? And I will tell you that I'm more likely to get in touch with a female VC, even though I work and and live and breathe in these pretty male-dominated. Um, dominated fields, so um, I mean, we definitely need. I feel like representative people everywhere across the board. So this is like our teams, who is building our products, uh, people investing in our products, um, people like pitching ideas on all these products, and it's it's weird when I look at all these female, like all the consumers are female, but actually you have zero females working for you. I know so many companies um, where it's so easy. And another thing that's interesting, coming from a minority or person of color point of view, is that investors and accelerators, popular ones in this area, are really big on investing in minority founders who are solving a minority problem. So they're not into, so if you're, I don't know, uh, if you're a person of color who's, uh, or actually, better one, if you're a Muslim girl who wears a headscarf and she's trying to solve a problem of other Muslim girls who wear headscarves, like they're more likely to invest in you, but if you're a Muslim girl who wears a headscarf who's trying to solve healthcare, they're like, actually, maybe a white guy should do that. Like, maybe that's not the best. That I don't understand. I think that part needs to change. Like, I don't actually know how to talk about it either because I can't say it up front to them and be like, is that, is that why? And they're going to get, like, they're going to kick me out real quick. Um, so, yeah, just, just having representative groups, I think. Yeah. It'd be an interesting path for me to take if I, like, ever end up becoming a VC yeah. where I'm going to be like, throw your minority at me. Do it. Uh, I actually have a follow-up question for you. So, um, given that you're trying to solve a problem for women, your customers are women, how has that shaped who you've hired onto your team and how do you think about sort of gender diversity across your team balanced with hiring for the skill sets you need on your team and, and all that? Um, it's really important to me that I don't have all female designers and all male delivery crew. Um, so that was when we first started just organically, you know, people coming in and, and applying for jobs, that's what I saw. I was like, this is so not okay, you know, yeah. like... Yeah all, you know, young female girls doing this and all men doing delivery. So um, we really, so we, we tried to hire um, the opposite gender and, um, you know, we, it's very important for us to have diversity as well. Um, we actually hired some wrong people into roles just because we wanted some male designers and some female couriers. Um, and we we're like, okay, we, we should not do this. But we are very cognizant of it. And thankfully, as we grew, um, they just naturally, you know, I mean, it's still heavily, like, we have three guy designers. I'm very proud of those three guys designers, <laughs> you know. Um, but I would say, like, our delivery crew is, like, 60-40 male-female now. So, um, yeah, we're very, and customer service, I don't want all female. So, um, we'll, you know, yeah, it's, thankfully, there's a lot of people who want to work at Farm Girl, so I'm very happy about that. So, we have a pool to, to draw from. Um, but, it, yeah, it's, it's important that we don't have all. Yeah, great. Okay, what else? What else do you guys want to hear? Talk about if and how the ecosystems you have been in um, and maybe 
yeah, actually, Christina is a great person, and uh, I'll go first so that I don't have to follow her. Um, uh, in, in terms of sort of de-risking, I think a lot of that, again, comes back to financing, which I'm talking a lot about, but um, it's really easy to take money like early on and then have the VC take all the risk versus you taking the risk. And I think the lean startup methodology is really important there because you can actually show a lot of traction or show a lot of people using your product by just putting out little snippets of something out there. So the first version of uh, my current product was a spreadsheet. It was like a glorified spreadsheet that was password protected and my clients could log in and, and plug in the password and, and go in there and, and see it. And then I was noticing how many times they were logging in or what information they were looking at or what they didn't care about. And those are all things that, you know, even though I'm doing like a concept pitch, if I were to raise money or whatever it is, those are things that I can actually talk about. And I think, uh, do you risk it for myself? Because sometimes we will like build features into our like beta that that like people don't actually use, but I've put in like a lot of time into it. So if I can build a little bit of it and I'll fake some things where I'll be like, click on this button if you want this. Or so. This is an example, I don't actually do it. Um, but at one of the companies I was at, Wave, we started going into tax time and we were like, do you need a, uh, an accountant because it's a small business platform? We were like, do you need an accountant to do your taxes? And like we made a button, but that button did nothing. So we just tracked like how many people were actually clicking on it before we went full on building that thing out. Um, and I think that's the, the build, measure, learn is really important because we keep throwing away stuff. I've thrown away more lines of code than I've kept. Um, and I think that's really important. I hope to be able to keep doing that instead of sort of getting married to my ideas and having like feature bloat, which ends up happening most of the time. Yeah, I think it, it's great for validation and permission. So validation in that um, reading the book, uh, I read it actually after I quit my job, so I'm glad that it did this, it validated me. Um, you know, it validates um, the ability to be scrappy and have that be okay and not feel like you're just not being prepared. You know, um, like I said, I have so many friends that like overdo everything before they ever put something out there and they seem so prepared all the time on it and like they're gonna be so prepared when they do this launch. I just really hope that somebody does come beat them to it because it's been two years since they've had this idea and working on it where, you know, I was riding by the seat of my pants, basically, and it gave me validation that that was okay and that was actually the right thing to do um, and permission to do it that way, um, to build, measure, learn, and to get a MVP out there and to just go with it. And um, I really, to me, like I have no education, no formal education either, by the way, which um, I like, didn't go to college, and so I think you know, I read every business book that I could get my hands on, and really this one resonated with me because it just was a lot of common sense, and that, I really appreciated, um, and one, I, that's how I want to run my company no matter when we are at the billion dollar mark or at the $10 million mark. I want to run it that way no matter what. Um, and so I really appreciate that about it, and it helps. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Yeah, come on up. Hey, Hilda, Christina, thank you for this. Uh, really appreciate hearing your insights. Um, so my question is, as a male who um, actually gives a shit, like for lack of a better word, uh, how do I, how does somebody demonstrate empathy without veering into benevolent sexism? And I can define the latter term. Good case. question. Yeah. That's a deep question. Yeah. <laughs> a good one. That's really good. Um, that's, that's super, th so thank you for giving a shit. Yes. That's important. Um, 
I, I always say I think it's really important to um, become an, like recognize your, your privilege and then become an ally for those with lesser privilege in any setting. So this could be, um, and I've seen this happen countless times, almost every meeting I'm in where there's males and females, where a, a, a female will put up an idea and nobody will pay attention to it until a male repeats the same idea. So in moments like those, um, it would be great if you being a male can actually back that idea up or call that out and say, actually, didn't she just mention that same thing? Um, and being able to sort of, I, I, I'm used to being the, the shit disturber in a, lot, in a lot of the organizations that I'm a part of, but that's a terrible position to put anyone in. If you're like the only person who should always stand up for all the minority rights because you happen to be at the intersection of all of them. And it's really important for other people to back this person up or even be the first people pointing this out so that I'm not having to take the fall literally all the time and becoming the person that they just avoid. And they're like, actually, we'll, we'll do this super racist party, but we don't, won't tell her. Um, and it'll be okay. So I think, I mean, the um, the he for she campaign, I think, Emma Watson. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Emma Watson said, said it really well where it can't just happen where it's just like, no, only women can do this. Um, but I think it's really important to also give, you know, whatever the minority might be, the space to do their own thing when they need it and for their voice to be heard when they need it um, as well. Balance to strike. She just took everything pretty much. The only, I would just um, second the fact that I think the most frustrating thing for me is when uh, the people that I work with just don't acknowledge that that is there. You know, um, and that I hear all the time, you know, you're crazy, you crazy feminist. Like, you know, um, you know, and it, it exists and just acknowledge it. Like, it's fine. If you want to sell your flowers to all of my male counterparts but me, just say it's because I don't have that part. You know, I mean, just tell me that. Like, don't say, like, a bunch of different excuses that then I have to come and tell you, well, that's not true because of this, and that's not true because of this, and all that. Just tell me that you don't want to sell me flowers, or whatever. I'm just using that as an example. Like, just acknowledge that it's there, um, and so we, you know, I don't have to look like the crazy feminists, you know? <laughs> so, and then, yeah, I have, I'm married to, like, the most wonderful feminist man who is all for the he for she campaign as well, and I think that that's just really important that it's not just the women standing up for women or the minorities standing up for minorities. I think it has to be like we're all in this together, you know? Please, yeah. I'll repeat the question really quick. So um, the question was, um, you know, a lot of times the sort of methodology that, that we're taught is find a problem you want to solve and then decide to be an entrepreneur to solve that problem. Um, uh, but, but, but what she's noticed and, and I've noticed too is there are a lot of people who kind of do it the opposite way. They say, you know what, I want to work for myself. I want to build something. I want to start a company. They make the decision to do that and then figure out what the company is going to do. And there is some success in, in doing it that way too. Um, so kind of going against sort of the, the recommended path, I guess. So the question was, how did you guys get started? Um, and how do you think sort of the, the two approaches kind of, kind of can work? That's a really good question. The chicken egg, you know, which came first. Um, so I, 
most of the we've gotten great press and all the people doing stories on us always want to hear that like I grew up you know playing in my grandmother's garden and I love flowers and all of that and no I had taught myself how to arrange flowers from YouTube um, like it had nothing to do with that I wanted I was the latter I wanted to start a business and I didn't know what it what I wanted to be in so I would you know, really annoy all of my friends and family with, you know, different ideas every week and every girlfriend's night would turn into like a focus group on like, hey, what do you guys think of these iron-on pockets or, you know, whatever, you know, it was and true story, pockets.com, still a brilliant idea, I think. Um, but so I knew I wanted to start a company. I didn't know what I wanted it to be about. Um, I knew I wanted it to do something good in the world and I wanted to be able to be passionate about it. And it'd be hard to get passionate about toilet paper, although I think it's really brilliant that some people have. Um, but I... My, to my chagrin, what my God-given talent was, was to make things pretty. So I knew it was probably going to be in a creative space, but it was just, you know, looking for the industry that had a good opportunity and something that I could do without $3 million of a national investment, because I knew it was going to take a long time to save that amount of money. And that's when I came up with the idea for Firm Real Flowers and just jumped. And I think that that is one of the biggest reasons why I'm successful um, is because I'm not so close to the product. Like in a lot of creative industries, what I find, people get into it because they just love flowers or they love baking or they love whatever, you know, the creative, you know, outlet that they're doing and they don't know their numbers. They don't know cogs. They don't know, like, they're like, I just have to use this $12 stem of, you know, King Protea. And I'm like, but it's a $40 bouquet. How are you ever going to make that work? You know? So it's because they're so close and passionate about what they're doing and they can't see it from the business perspective. And um, I'm definitely coming to it from the other side. And I think that that's really necessary in order if you want it to grow to a big, big scale. I don't know if that answers it. Yeah, no, I'm the, op I'm the opposite of that, which is why it's a great, great panel um, <laughs> right here. But um, w my co-founder and I had been sort of playing around with this idea about nine months before I officially quit my job. Um, and we'd, we'd actually been thinking about it for about six years now, which is a long time. Uh, but we, didn't, we knew sort of the space, like a fuzzy idea, but we didn't know exactly where we thought we would fit in best. And we wanted to make sure that our skill sets actually um, fit in really well with the, with the problem itself. Um, and so, you know, I quit my job because I wanted to start this specific company. Um, and it's, it's the thing that I want to be really passionate about. And I, uh, I, I feel like it's necessary if you want to keep going because I'm not naive. I know this is just like the beginning and I'm going to go through lots of troughs of sorrow along the way and I'm going to like kind of hate myself or whatever. And I need to at least like really like the space that I'm working in um, in order to be uh, okay with it. And I've sort of seen a mixed bag of all the previous entrepreneurs that I've worked with where some of them like Alan and Ivan have like always thought about reading like are you know, avid readers and want to do e-reading um, with Kirk and James at Wave who, you know, sort of came together and they were like, oh, we have a cool team. What can we build? Um, and I think they can both work, actually. I just happen to be uh, the former. I'm just super passionate about um, using my powers for good in healthcare. Great. Well, thank you. I think that is our time. Um, so please join me in thanking them for sharing all their great stories. Okay.